The Old Testament reading is written in the 60th chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah, beginning at the first verse. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Please stand for the Gospel reading. The Holy Gospel reading is written in the first chapter of the Gospel according to Luke, beginning at the 26th verse. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the Lord, then the angel left her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Please do sit down and let me wish you a Merry Christmas and extend a heartfelt thank you to Justin and to Rob for, uh, for having me on this high day.
this important occasion. It may seem odd to begin a Christmas sermon with an insight from the Buddha. But Siddhartha Gautama taught something I find compelling at this time of year especially. He taught that sometimes it's in the happiest moments that the sadness pierces through. Now, I can't go all the way with the Buddha and agree that happiness itself is suffering on account of it being transitory. I don't believe that. But there's something to his idea. And there are so many things to be happy about at Christmas time uh, the gifts, the food, the family, the singing. Oh my goodness, the singing tonight. Uh, the summer the possible rest, a little bit of religion, and much more. And yet, many of us find ourselves, at this time of year, confronted by the sadness as well. We're in a crowd, but we feel alone. We're feasting with plenty, and we find ourselves fretting about those who have nothing. We're reconnecting with family, but then that raises regrets. The poet John Keats, famous romantic 19th century poet, put the same thought this way. I in the very temple of delight, veiled melancholy has her sovereign shrine. It's in the happiest moments that sometimes the sadness pierces through. Now, this has become a little bit of a theme, it seems. Uh, a few years ago, uh, the journalist Julia Baird kicked off what seems to be a tradition of media articles about how sad Christmas is. Uh, you may remember this one from, I think, 2016 in which she was not playing the Grinch. Um, Julia Baird was really calling the bluff on the play acting that we often do at this time of year. Uh, she wrote in part, our streets are studded with opening frangipani, the air is thick with heat and salt, school uniforms folded away for the year and a sticky summer awaits. But an odd feeling of impotent despair has infected our conversations and celebrations this year. Aleppo, Brexit, climate change, fracturing global accord, partisan ugliness, and an atmosphere of cheap shots and short-term gain. Gut has triumphed over grace. And the thing is, four years later, all of these problems are still with us, and we have to add to the list, global pandemics. And then just the other day, you may have seen uh, the broadcaster Virginia Trioli published her entry into the competition for most depressing article at Christmas time. But it strikes a chord. She wrote, 
I'll say it. I reckon the one thing that unites us all is that Christmas never lives up to the picture in our heads. And that on some level of quiet desperation, we've come to dread it. For the five things I love about Christmas, there are five things I just tolerate. Sometimes I wish I could press fast forward and jump over 25 December and get to 26. Complex families, sad histories, missing people, broken relationships, age, loss, mistakes, all the usual stuff of life just prismatically expanded at Christmas. For Trioli, Christmas doesn't just sometimes permit the sadness to pierce through the joy. For her, Christmas magnifies the sadness. And I get it. I get it. I especially get it this year, this strange year. Articles like Julia Baird's and Virginia Trioli's, I think, simultaneously highlight just how secular our culture has become with regard to Christmas, and it underlines how important it is to get back to the traditional idea, the original idea of Christmas. Because Christmas has, for many, morphed into a kind of playing at happiness, playing at families, playing at celebration, even playing at religion. And that is always going to invite melancholy's sovereign shrine. So the prophets, Julia Baird and Virginia Trioli, I think are naming this problem. I think they are detecting the secularization of Christmas, devoid of its actual content. But the thing I want to say is that the traditional Christmas story isn't about manufacturing celebration and delight to keep the sadness at bay. It's about naming the sadness and recalling the great promise of Scripture that one day joy will pierce the sadness fully and forever. I put it to you that Anno Domini I was every bit as troubling and disorienting as AD 2020. It's true that Mary and her little family didn't have a global pandemic, but she did have Emperor Augustus flexing his muscles in a worldwide census designed to extract yet more tax yet more power to himself over the vassal states. And this little holy family also had the, had the brutal Herod the Great, whom we know from history killed his own children on a hunch and thought nothing of doing the same with the infants of Bethlehem. Then, of course, there's the unplanned and scandalous pregnancy, the 120-kilometer journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, probably on foot 
with all due respect to the Christmas card donkey. And when they get there, we are told there's no room for them. There's just a manger. The significance of which is so easily lost on us after 2,000 years of Christmas gentrification. Yeah? I mean, baby Jesus in a manger is now the sweet cliche of Christmas. But actually, is that really what's going on? We hardly use the word manger today, except in Christmas, right? So you could be forgiven for thinking a manger is a special bed reserved for the Son of God, a kind of baby throne for the baby king or something. But of course, the the word manger, fatni in Greek, is the animal feeding area. It either refers to the pen or the trough. Either way, The point is the same. God has stepped onto the world stage at the lowest point imaginable. A fatni, a feeding area. At the very moment Augustus is flexing his muscles and Herod the Great breathing out his threats, God, we are told, enters the mess with us, humbly from below. And he does this to turn the whole thing upside down. This is the meaning Mary herself attached to Christmas. She responds to the news of her pregnancy with the words that we heard read out to us before, we call them a song, we call them the Magnificat, but here's what she declares to remind you. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts, has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Now, there are always competing claims at this time of year, right, for the true meaning of Christmas. Advertisers tell you the true meaning of Christmas. Politicians tell you the true meaning of Christmas. And yes, I admit, Uh, sermonizers tell you the true meaning of Christmas, but I put it to you, no one should know better than the mother at the heart of this story. And according to Mary, Christmas is about God turning things upside down, which is really the right way up. And God does this not from on high, with the power of Augustus or the brutality of Herod. That would just be more of the same old human story. No, God achieves his overthrow from below. In the humility of a manger, with lowly shepherds as first witnesses, with foreigners as first worshippers, 
everything about the Christmas story, the whole story of Jesus really, tells us that God intends to undo the mess by first getting his own hands dirty. He intends to mend by first being injured. This is precisely the theme of the oldest Christmas sermon we have still extant. It's from Bishop Augustine of Hipparigius in North Africa around the year 400. Listen to this. The maker of man became man, that he, the ruler of the stars, might be nourished at the breast, that he, the bread, might be hungry, that he, the truth, might be accused by false witnesses, that he, the judge of the living and the dead, might be brought to trial by a mortal judge, that security might be wounded, that life might die. To endure these and similar indignities for us, to free us unworthy creatures, he who existed as the Son of God before all ages stooped to become the Son of Man in these recent years. Admittedly, the events aren't so recent anymore, but the message is the same. God entered the noise of our world in order to transpose it into his eternal melody. Mary's song about the scattering of the proud, the lifting up of the humble, the righting of wrongs, will one day become the song of the world. And joy will pierce the sadness forever and fully. The Atlantic Monthly recounted a remarkable story, some of you may have heard, a remarkable story of musical discord and resolution. Apparently, Wynton Marsalis, arguably the greatest living trumpeter, with due deference to Dave, was playing incognito with his friends in a tiny little jazz bar in New York City one Tuesday evening in August. And only the jazz journalist who happened to be there recognized who it was. Apparently, Marsalis stepped forward in the fourth song and played a mesmerizing ballad. And at the high point, someone's blaring mobile phone went off and interrupted the whole thing. The uh, journalist uh, actually described it as a blaring, rapid, sing-song melody of electronic bleeps. People started giggling, turned to one another and started drinking and conversing. The whole thing was undone. 
And Marsalis apparently just stood frozen at the microphone, unsure what to do. And the journalist got out his notepad and pen and wrote the words, magic ruined. That was going to be his story. But a few minutes later, Marsalis started to play. He played the mobile phone tune he'd just heard. And people giggled just like that and slowly came back to him. Then he began to improvise on the mobile phone tune and everyone was fixed on him. But you've got to hear how the journalist puts it. He repeated the mobile phone tune and began improvising variations on the tune. The audience slowly came back to him. In a few minutes, he had resolved the improvisation, which had changed keys once or twice and throttled down to a ballad tempo, and he ended up exactly where he had left off. And apparently, the ovation in the room was tremendous, the journalist writes. Why do I tell you that? I think a musical resolution is a pretty good picture of the promise at the heart of Christmas. God intends to take all of the discord, the sadness, the brutality, the ego, the sickness, the death, and somehow weave it back into his eternal melody. If I can put it like this, the life of Jesus from manger to cross to resurrection is the first notes of the resolution, the first hint that we're heading in a different direction. Now, I'm not sure when was the last time you picked up a gospel for yourself? Those first century biographies of Jesus. But if I have any challenge for you today this Christmas, it's just this. Why not read a gospel, Luke's gospel perhaps, and come to it with your adult questions? Forgetting that you've ever heard this stuff before and read this remarkable document. I think you will find it to be messier than you remember, weirder than you remember, far less cliched, and I think if you read it with adult questions, you'll find the central character of the Gospels far harder to pigeonhole and far more compelling as a result. At one level, the story of Christ reads like it's just more of the mess, the sadness, because there is a baby sidelined to a trough. There is a Savior falsely convicted and crucified. It sounds like more of the same cacophony. But it's actually the key change, the first notes of the resolution, it's the transition point. The manger tells us the powerful will not in the end win. 
the life and teaching of Jesus shine as the model of love our world desperately needs. His death cancels our wrongdoing and cancels cancel culture. And His resurrection is the proof and the pledge that God can and will breathe life where there is death. Mary's song is set to be the song of the world. Joy will pierce the sadness fully and forever, and the ovation will be tremendous. Lord, will you please, wherever we find ourselves in our minds and our hearts this Christmas, help us to see afresh the truth at the heart of Christmas, the upending of the world, the first notes of your remedy. Lord, will you please help every one of us come again to Jesus Christ, to the gospel, as adults, with new questions, and find you, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.